You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your life is going to change. Jobs, kids, houses. Are you financially ready to enjoy the ride? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor today because you've got a lot to look forward to, but it's always better to be prepared. Hey, everybody. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. So we are now at the tail end of February, and even though spring flowers and warmer weather are just around the corner, April will be here before we know it. And that doesn't just mean allergies. It means tax season. Tax season is about to hit us. In 2023, our 2022 taxes will be due on Tuesday, April 18th. And if you haven't already started thinking about your potential refund, or dare I say it, how much you might owe the IRS, now is the time. Part of the reason we wanted to talk taxes today is because of all the changes to the tax code in the last year. Income tax brackets shifted a bit, the standard deduction increased slightly, there were adjustments to the child tax credit and how much we can contribute to our 401ks, just to name a few. So today, we're going to unpack those changes, discuss what you need to know to have a successful and stress-free tax prep experience, and we're going to do it all with Robin Caruso. Robin is a partner at Prager Metis International. She specializes in complex tax work, and she assists her clients in handling federal and state tax problems, tax audits, tax controversy. She also oversees accounting and financial planning matters for a lot of high net worth clients. She's been in the industry for over a quarter century. Robin, welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here, Jean. It is nice to have you. So before we go into the tax changes for the year, can we just start by talking about some general pitfalls. I have gotten letters from the IRS. Usually they're just minutiae, fortunately, but they always strike fear in my heart and I'm sure in the heart of many, many of our listeners because making a mistake on your taxes, that's a big fear. What are some of the mistakes that you routinely see and how can we avoid them? Thanks, Jean, for asking that question. It's a great question. We specialize in assisting people in resolving federal and state tax matters on a regular basis, and people don't realize how frequent this happens. And so much of it begins with how we file our tax return and when we file our tax return. So one of the first recommendations that I have for people is, if you haven't already done so, start gathering all of your tax information and documents. Make sure that you're thinking of everything that you have. We don't want to file too soon without including all of the things that we're anticipating getting. The IRS sends out these matching notices, they call them. So if you file your tax return and you forget to report something, you're going to get an ugly tax notice that says, we have this additional information that you have this extra income and you haven't told us about it and they're going to send a notice. With respect to notices, it's so important. Anytime you receive any letter or notice or information from the IRS or from a state, 
open that tax letter up, read it very, very carefully, and respond to it as requested. Sometimes these tax notices are advising us of really important rights that we have. It'll tell you that you have 30 days to appeal this. If you get this information into us by that date, you'll be okay. You correct these things. And I generally recommend, especially as we're talking about significant dollars, that you reach out to a tax advisor or specialist to help with this. These things are tricky. And our rights, like, you know, do we have a 30-day rights for appeals? Do we have 90 days to file a tax court petition? Have they already issued a letter saying, here's a determination of the amount you have to pay? We really need to understand what these letters are saying and address them properly, Jean. And I imagine if you don't understand what it's saying, because sometimes it's really complicated. I, you know, full disclosure, I switched 401k plans because I started a new company and I shut one down and I started a new one for my employees. And I got a notice that I was being audited on the old one, which I got to tell you is a pain in the ass. I would use a much worse word if I could, but I can't right on the show right now. So what it's are time consuming and they're very costly. So we do recommend that taxpayers work hard to file the return correctly at the get go. So important. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But what I was getting at was that I didn't even understand everything that they were asking me for right? I do this for a living and I didn't understand everything that they were asking me for. So I shot it over to my tax professional, my accountant, and he was able to say, oh, this is this, this is this. I had it all. It was just a matter of parsing it. So if you get a letter from the IRS, yes, like Robin said, open it, even though you really don't want to open it, open it. And next, If you need help understanding it, don't think that there's something wrong with you. There is just a convoluted way that the IRS has of actually speaking. When we are advising people to get everything in order for the tax season, we always tell them to gather their documents as soon as they can. And that's some advice that you started to give as well, that you've got to gather what you need. Is there a formula that you recommend that people follow or a set of instructions that you recommend people follow to make it as easy as possible on themselves? Actually, I do. I recommend that you start out by looking at last year's tax return because it's a great way to remind yourself of all the different things that you have to consider. Do I have interest income from ABC Bank and CDE Bank? You know, do I have brokerage account statements to worry about? How many Schedules 10K1 might I be getting from partnerships? Do I have rental realty that I'm dealing with and what kinds of information do I need to know? Did I pay real estate taxes for it? Did I do special maintenance or repairs that year? Do I have to take into consideration bonus depreciation and other special rules for a business? Like, you know, a lot of people have a Schedule C a business or their gig workers, they don't always realize what responsibilities they have. Do they have to pay sales tax? Do they have to issue 1099s, which those should have gone out already. So if you are a gig worker or you have a business, make sure you've taken care of your forms 1099 that need to be issued. And if they're for rent or for legal or certain expenses, you still have until the end of February to issue those timely. 
But that's a great place to start is by looking at the past. And then make sure you're opening all of your mail because you get all these important tax docs. The biggest thing that people forget is what aren't we receiving in the mail anymore? Are you getting paperless documents from your bank? Your mortgage interest is a deduction that you can take potentially if you're not taking the standard deduction. You may have to go into your account at the mortgage provider and actually download that. If you receive tax refunds from states, many states like New York, they don't send them to you. You have to log into your account and download the document to tell you what your amount is. The newest thing that we've been recommending people the last couple of years, and this is a great product that the IRS has out, it's an online account. You could go to irs.gov and set up your own personal online account. You could also set up your own identity PIN number that protects you from identity theft protection. So that's another great thing to do. And then you use that number when you're filing. But within your IRS online account, you can actually download your own IRS account transcripts. You can get an account transcripts, which will tell you any estimated tax payments you made. If It'll indicate if you've received notices, if they're like looking at a prior year. And then you could go into something called a wage and income transcript. And on that wage and income transcript is everything that's been reported about you to the IRS so that if there's something you didn't think of or you missed, now you'll have it. But those frequently aren't available with full detail until August, September for some people. So how do we set up one of those accounts? What do we need to do with the IRS? Is there a cost for doing this? And if we have those downloadable forms like for mortgage interest or for the interest that you've received on the savings account at your bank, can you send them electronically to the IRS through this account or you have to wait until you file? We don't need to send our own information to the IRS The people who issue mortgages, the providers, they're required to do what's called informational filing of information. The same way your employer has to give you a W-2, the employer doesn't just give you your employee copy. He sends a copy of your W-2 to the IRS, to the Social Security admin, et cetera, forms 1099. If you're doing subcontracting work for someone and you're receiving a 1099, and keep in mind, whether you received that 1099 or you didn't receive a 1099, it's still taxable income to you. You have an obligation to report all of your income. And Jean mentioned being in an audit for a business. It's ugly. They look through your bank account statements. They look through all your credit card statements. They look through your books and records. They will find these things. So if you've received income, you want to make sure you're reporting it. It's not based on whether or not you received the document reminding you of it. So informational filings are things that people who work with you report to the IRS about you. And then if we have a business, we may be required to issue Forms 1099 to subcontractors that we use. But in terms of the account that you were talking about that we could open at irs.gov, is that an easy process? It's relatively easy, but you do have to be prepared to prove your identity. It's a step-by-step thing. You go to irs.gov, you search for my online account, you set up, you click set the account, and it'll tell you what information to have in front of you. I did my own a couple of years ago. When I did it, it went through an ID me process and I it actually took a picture of me. It scanned my driver's license and verified I was who I am. And now Congress or the powers that be have said that they don't retain that information. It's just for the 
authentication process for that short period to make sure you are who you are so that nobody else is getting into your personal information. So it's protecting us. The identity theft issues that you've raised have been really a problem in recent years, particularly with state taxes. People have been masquerading as other people, stealing their identities, using that information to claim their state tax refunds. Does this prevent that from happening or that number you referred to? How do you get one of those and does that keep you safe and is there any cost for it? There's no cost to getting the identity PIN number from the IRS, and it does help. I believe at one of the meetings I was at recently, the IRS mentioned that people who, and we always recommend this, that you electronically file your return, don't send in paper, that you make electronic payments, and that you use these IPINs. It's like 20%, like 16 to 20% less risk of having issues with identity theft when you take advantage of the opportunity of these extra measures that are available. And people need to remember, like if you get a notice in the mail and it doesn't look right to you, question it. Don't call the number on the notice. Go online and search for, you know, where you would call the IRS and contact them yourself and ask, are you looking to speak to me? Just like people tell you, you know, people are trying to sell us cars and insurance and all kind. you know, every day we get all the spam in our email. You don't want to click on anything in your email. You want to make sure you read where it came from carefully. Don't download something you're not expecting to get. And the IRS, they don't ever email you. They don't ask for your social security number in emails and things like this that people get. That's phishing and spam stuff. You want to be really careful to watch out for that. It's all such great information, Robin, and information that I think that a lot of our listeners, including me, have not heard before. For people who file using TurboTax or one of the other online software programs, are these safety measures available to them as well? Do they interface? Yes, they interface is my understanding. Basically, there's a place where you would put in this personal identifying additional information. Some states, because Gina, it was a great point you made, and I like talking about states. People forget to think about state taxes. And the states are aggressive. They're looking for dollars. They want to make sure we're filing correctly, that we're filing where we're actually working, living, making money, all these things. So it's really important to pay attention to the states, especially this past few years with COVID and people telecommuting and remote working and all of these things. Extra important to focus on that, I think. Some of the states do the driver's license. It just popped in my head. Like New York, when I do a person's tax term for New York and New Jersey, you could put your driver's license in and it's one more way of showing your you so that someone else can't. I'd like to talk about timely filing, if you don't mind. It's associated with this because when we timely file a return, it makes it less likely someone else can steal our identity and file a return trying to get a refund under our names. But if we can't file timely sometimes because we don't have all of our information, it's very important that we file a tax extension on time and that we pay the tax that's due. We have to do a projection and make sure we're paying in what we think we owe so that we can avoid paying additional penalties and interest on the taxes that we do. They add up very quickly as much as 5% a month. And when you say timely filing, I assume you mean this year by April 18th. Absolutely. So when April 18th rolls around, file your accurate, complete tax return 
or file a tax extension and pay what you owe. And keep in mind, once we file that extension, it prevents someone else from, you know, it makes it harder for someone else to file against us. And if we set ourselves up to use the special identity PIN number, and the IRS has something separate for people who have had identity theft. They have special identifying information. And I don't know the form offhand, but there is a form that you can use to advise the IRS you've had this problem and request every year your own special ID number from the IRS in order for a return to be filed. That prevents anybody else from filing in your name as well. So important. I know we want to talk about what's happening specifically this year. We're going to get to that in just a second. But first, life comes at you fast. There could be wedding bells on the horizon, a promotion around the corner, a grandchild on the way. Are you financially prepared for everything that life has in store? With a well-crafted financial plan, you can be ready. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor. You'll work with an expert to review your current situation to develop a long-term strategy to help you embrace life's biggest moments. Schedule your free appointment today. I am talking with Robin Caruso, partner in the tax department at Prager Metis International. We're talking about all things tax-related. So what are the biggies that are new for this year? There are some interesting changes this year in my mind because we've all gone through all of the pandemic-related relief and stimulus payments and advanced tax credit, child tax credits and all these things. And, and they changed rates and tried to make life easier for the American public during the pandemic. And now some things have stayed or been extended through 26 because of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which was implemented in 2017. Not everything from that went away. But COVID made so many significant changes to almost everything that they started to do in 2018. It suspended, extended, superseded, you know, just changed everything. And so like one great example would be the child and dependent care credit. During COVID, you were able to get up to $8,000, and now that's back down to $3,000 per qualifying child. But it's still $3,000 of a child tax credit per child, and it's up to 6000 for two or more children. So, so we've got the valuable child tax credit. What else? Well, there's a couple of changes with the tax credit. It's been expanded in that the credit is allowed up to 35% of your employment-related expenses that are incurred. So if you have two or more children, you will get a credit of up to $6,000. And that credit isn't outright $6,000. It's based on up to 35% of the employment-related expenses that you actually incur. And this is a great thing for anybody who's working or looking for work. And There are two tidbits on this I want to point out. A lot of people aren't aware that the child independent care credit is also available if you have a spouse or other dependent person that meets other tests, such as living with you, that is either physically or mentally not able to care for themselves. You still qualify for these dependent and child tax credits. So it's not only your qualifying child under age 13, it could also be a spouse or other person. And one other unique thing in this year is that if there's anybody that had unused dependent care flexible spending amounts 
from years 20 or 21. So that means if you had an FSA or a flex spending account at your job and you weren't able to use all that money up because we were all sitting home or we couldn't get to the doctor or to the childcare provider or whatever these monies were to be used for, we have the opportunity to use that money to add it on. It's in addition to the up to three or 6,000. We're able to take advantage of that money during 2022. So make sure you're thinking about that if you have those unused monies so you're not losing out on that benefit for yourself. That's great. And that's a traditional flexible spending account as well as a flexible spending account that's used for dependent care because there are two. It's the unused dependent care flex spending amounts. Okay. It's unused. It's specific to the unused dependent care flexible spending amounts from 20 and 21. We're allowed in 22 to tack those on to our otherwise available child independent care credits. And another change is that this is no longer refundable. And it's interesting concept. A refundable tax means that even if I owe zero, I can still get a credit for those taxes and I'll get money back so I could almost go negative and get a refund. When a credit is non-refundable, it means that it can only bring my tax obligation down to zero and then I don't have to pay anything wonderful. So during COVID, they made this a refundable tax, a little extra kick to the people who qualified for this, and that's gone away. So we're going to see a little bit less in refunds for some taxpayers this year due to these changes. And Jean, you mentioned tax rate creep, like tax rates change too. So that helps. The rates increase a bit. So a little more of our dollars stay in the lower tax brackets. So we get a little bit of extra benefit of paying lower tax rates on a little more of our money with that tax rate creep. Unfortunately, most states don't follow the IRS tax bracket adjustments. Like, for instance, in New Jersey, if it's, you know, it doesn't move the same way. So sometimes your state taxes can go up because the rates aren't being adjusted similarly. I know some of our listeners have experienced big life changes this year. They've gotten married, they've gotten divorced, maybe they've had a baby. All these things can have a big impact tax-wise. How is the best way to think about a plan? It's interesting what you're saying. Well, if you have a child, right now through 2026, we don't have the deductions for each of our dependents, that outright deduction we were used to having. It's gone away through 26, as have certain miscellaneous deductions. We used to be able to take deductions for, like everyone said, every year. How much did you pay for your safe deposit box? But all those little pieces aren't adding up right now through 2026. But with that said, there's a great thing to think about when you think about getting married. And that is the moment I file an income tax return jointly, it may give me a benefit. It may not. You have to do an analysis and see, am I better off filing married filing separate or married filing joint? There are certain tax provisions and credits that you can't take advantage of if you don't file jointly. So you have to think about that. And these are complexities where at this point people usually need tax advisors to help with or really reading closely the instructions and the publications on this yourself. But it's an analysis. Should I file joint or separate? Frequently, my experience and for over 30 plus years is that most people save three to 10, even 12, $15,000 filing joint. It's not much more than that. So for high level, if you're both making almost the same amount of money, the difference isn't as much. But if you have one partner making 
less income and another higher income earner, usually you see a difference in some savings. But here's my caveat, and this is a great tip. Be very careful. The minute you sign a tax return joint with your partner or spouse or what have you, at that point, you are taking on the obligation and responsibility jointly and severally of all the tax that's due. So if everything is reported and everything is paid, everything's great, and we're saving money as a couple, perhaps. But what if we can't pay the entire tax that due? And I had withholding on my W-2 and you had a self-employed company you ran and you didn't make your estimates. I could be held accountable, you know, for up to 10 years, whatever the collection statute is by the governmental agency, state and federal or different. For federal, it's 10 years. So from once that tax is assessed for the next 10 years, the IRS is going to be coming after me. I could get divorced in three years from you, and I'll still owe that tax that you owed, and they could still come to me for it. So we do want to be careful. And again, Gene, you mentioned the nasty audit. If you get audited and there was something unreported on that tax return, you'll be held accountable for that. So even if you think everything was paid, if it turns out it wasn't, you can be held responsible. So you want to be careful when you file a joint return with somebody else. But you also want to make sure you're taking advantage of the best tax, you know, maximizing your benefits and minimizing your tax liability. And filing a joint return is a great way to minimize your tax filing responsibility as long as you understand the obligations that come with it. So let's say we do our taxes and we don't really like the way it all came out. Maybe we owed money. We didn't want to owe money. Maybe we got too big of a refund and we would have rather had that money during the year. What's the first step that you take in making a change to make sure that history doesn't repeat itself? If you're working as an employee for somebody, you're going to want to go and fill out a new form W-4 for them. And adjust the numbers on your W-4 to reflect the kind of withholding you really need to have. Let's say at the end of the year, you owed a lot more money than you expected to owe. You're going to want to adjust your W-4, and there's a box that says, how much more do you want taken out of your pay each time? And you could say, I want an extra 200 pay period taken out. So you could either reduce or increase the amount being withheld if you're working for yourself and paying your taxes through estimates, or even if you're an employee, but you have lots of unearned income or capital investments or rental income or other types of income, you want to make sure that you're doing a good tax projection, figuring out what you really owe and paying in what that is. And keep in mind, when we're required to pay estimates, because we have income that's not having any kind of withholding taken out on it, we need to make estimated payments because by the end of the year, we need to make sure we've paid in at least 90% of what we actually owed. Or if we make under 150000 we have to pay in at least 100% of what we owed in the prior year. So what you would want to do is look at last year's tax return and say, oh, I owed 30000 of federal tax. I want to make sure I'm paying in a pro at least 30000 this year so I can't be assessed with any penalties for underpayment of estimated taxes. If you make over 150, that number is 110% of the prior year. A lot of people don't realize that. So you just want to, again, look up what the rules are for filing your estimated taxes and make sure you're paying them quarterly or you will receive estimated taxes. One last question, Robin, and it's in two parts. What's the best thing to do if you owe money to the IRS maybe even if you are going to have trouble paying it. And what's the best thing people can do if they're getting a refund with that refund? 
Okay. If you're getting a refund and you know you have a refund coming to you, you're going to want to file your tax return as soon as you have all your information gathered and can file it correctly so that you get that refund as quickly as possible and you want to do direct deposit of that refund. By direct depositing the refund, you'll have your money within generally three to six weeks you should have your money. Sometimes there's something in your tax return. If you have earned income tax credit or you were receiving last year those advanced child tax credits, sometimes your tax return has to go through the IRS error resolution to be looked at and verified before the refund comes. But they're using automated methodologies to do that now on all those common things. So you should get your refund pretty quickly that way. What if I can't pay what I owe? If you can't pay what you owe, you have a lot of options. The IRS and the states work with taxpayers and they have all different options. And you want to address this as quickly as possible. If you owe money, when you file your return, you're going to want to include a form 9465 right in your tax return. You can only do it for the one year. They don't let you do it on the tax return for multiple years. So you want to say, I'm doing 22, put 22 up in the box, and you let them know that you want to get into a payment plan. And so you're automatically right at the get-go requesting an installment plan to pay what's due. And generally, it's paid out over 70 to up to 72 months you'll have. And the great thing about getting into an installment plan right away or as quickly as possible is there's this thing called failure to pay penalties. They are half of 1% a month, so that's 6% a year. The minute I get into an installment plan, that goes to half the rate. So you could be paying only 3% a year instead of 6% a year. That could be a lot of money for some folks. So you want to get into an installment plan right away. Also, you want to address this quickly because the last thing you want to do is start getting a CP14 and then a this and then a that notice and find out that they're putting a lien on your account, they're garnishing your wages and just ugly things start to happen. And you don't want to deal with that and you don't want the cost and expense of handling that. So you want to get into an installment plan. If you owe a tremendous amount of money and you have no means to pay, you can't get into a full pay installment plan, then you want to reach out to someone like myself, somebody who specializes in this area. There are lots of people out there that specialize in tax controversy. And you want to find out, do I qualify for an offer and compromise? That's where you're paying the cents on the dollar. But you want to do it carefully because the minute you request an offer and compromise, you're stopping the statute of limitations on the running of the statute I mentioned earlier for collections. And sometimes it could take a year, year and a half to get that done. So it means the IRS has a lot longer to collect from you. And another option is if you can partially pay, you could get into a partial pay installment agreement. And if you can't pay at all, if you're really in dire straits and you could show the IRS that you can't pay, you have to fill out you know, financial disclosure information for any anything that isn't a full pay. You have to demonstrate and prove I can't full pay. But once I can't full pay, I have the opportunity to fill out different forms depending on my specific situation and show the IRS I can't pay. And you may even be able to get into something called currently not collectible. You can call the IRS and do that over the phone if you call for yourself. They're going to ask you a lot of questions. You have to be prepared to answer questions about your finances. And if they believe that you won't be able to pay, they'll give you a hold on a time frame and they'll say, you know, we understand you won't be paying anything for this year, possibly in the next two years. They do revisit. The minute you file another tax return showing you're working again, I 
got a new job, my income's up again. They're going to revisit and you're going to get a letter in the mail, which we talked about earlier. You want to make sure you open up and read very carefully and, and address your situation. All right. I know I said that that was my last question, but I have one more. Are there any other unusual filing obligations that people have that they may not know about? Yes, actually. What I've been seeing happen more and more, I mean, we have a very diverse country and we have a lot of people who they're making investments into businesses in foreign countries. They come from other places. They have bank accounts in other countries. And the penalties that come along with not filing the required informational filings to let our government know that you have a foreign bank account or multiple accounts that in the aggregate exceed $10,000, it comes with a $10,000 per year penalty for not filing this simple informational filing. So you may have a FBAR filing to do. It's a FinCEN 114. So if you have have bank accounts collectively that have over 10,000, you want to make sure you understand your obligation. And interestingly enough, if all you have is signatory authority over your aunt's bank account, you may have this obligation because you have a signatory authority. So you want to understand foreign filing, informational filing things. And if you have any business investments out of the country or you have tax returns you're filing with investors from outside the country into our country, there are other forms that need to be filed if you receive gifts or inheritances. Very important. 3520 needs to be filed. So I'd like to make sure people are at least aware that there is such a thing to think about. So you don't need to know all the details, but you need to know that if I get a lot of money that I inherit from outside the country, I better make sure I understand if I have something I need to file because the penalties on those are up to 25% of the amount I received. Okay. I lied again, Robin. One more question because... I mean, we are getting into territory that I got to tell you, we have never talked about on this show. And we've been doing this show for six years. We've got really, really smart listeners. I know that they're going to have questions. And if they have questions and they send them in quickly, can we get you back in before tax season is over to answer them? Absolutely. This is a particular, I'm very passionate about this particular topic because I have worked with people that inherited property, received gifts, had bank accounts they didn't know about, had parents who own a rental property in another country where there is income on that rental property and they're a 25% owner. Nobody ever told them, nobody ever gave them any information, but they find out they're responsible for this at some point. And it's very costly fighting this afterwards. There is something called reasonable cause. So it's one thing I didn't mention earlier, but if you ever do get penalties or notices or problems, usually if it's something that you had no idea or there's a good rationale for why this happened to you, we can help you get rid of those penalties if you have reasonable cause. Amazing. Robin Caruso, thank you so very much. And you guys heard it here. If you've got tax questions, we've got an incredibly knowledgeable person to answer them. So please go ahead and send them to mailbag at hermoney.com and we'll get another show rolling ASAP. Just a reminder that Her Money is so grateful to be supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union that understands financial freedom does not happen at one single point, but rather at many different stages of your life. 
That's why BCU likes to say they are here today for your tomorrow. With support available at every stage of your financial journey, you can learn more about eligibility at bcu.org. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Robin Caruso for all of her guidance on tax season. I am now ready actually to pour myself a drink, but really to get all of my tax documents out of the drawer and make sure I have everything ready to go. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll talk soon.